Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello there. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Quickly, quickly, we haven't got long. Please listen to the all-new Angela Sandbelly podcast. It's a family one. Oh, my God, it's hilarious. There's so much muck in it. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. Hello. This episode is a two-parter. Um, as well as talking to Steve Dawson about his career and love of comedy, he also spoke a lot about writing and the craft of comedy, which I felt was not only fascinating, but also invaluable for anyone who was looking to break into that world. And it would have been a shame to cut it simply for time reasons. So anyway, this is part one. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, yeah, stick around for part two. Cheers. Out of Character, a podcast about sketch and character comedy. My name is Alex Lynch. In this show, I talk to writers and performers from the world of sketch and character comedy, find out what made them venture into it, talk about their characters, maybe meet some of their characters, and generally just shoot the breeze and, more importantly, have a laugh. My special guest for episode five is writer and high lord of comedy, Steve Dawson. (laughs) Hello, Steve. Thank you for reading out what I gave you. Hello. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the show. That That's good. I'm here looking out over all, all my c- comedy people from this throne that, from which I sit on. The minions. The minions, yeah. Yes. Uh, I, that's a lie. I'm in a very warm loft room <laughs> surrounded by foam. <laughs> and we are recording this uh, in lockdown. How are you finding yep. lockdown at the moment? Oh, it's been... I, I'm not going to lie, and I don't think anyone said this before, but it's weird, isn't it? Um, it's, um, <laughs> the work's been interesting because we've gone from writing entertainment shows and stuff like that, where you would go out and you'd shoot stuff, or you, you know, someone might ask you in for a meeting, all that kind of stuff that normally happens, to uh, suddenly writing for one, doing a lot of development work, and two, writing for shows about coronavirus. So oh, wow. it's it's sort of a weird shift, and also already getting very bored of the aesthetic of 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 it and i apologize if you're listening to this podcast like in a few months time when there's no lockdown and everyone's sort of moved on with their lives and no one wants to talk about lockdown and coronavirus anymore but you know i'm I'm absolutely bored of the aesthetic of people in their houses shooting stuff themselves and and also how uh, as we keep discussing amongst the ourselves the dawson brothers that um about 10 years ago youtubers uh quality looked awful and was on you know youtube and shot on home 
cameras yes, yes. Um, and professional stuff on the BBC was, you know, crisp and beautiful. And now it's ex- exact opposite. YouTubers can make amazing shows during lockdown yeah. and BBC cannot. Yeah, it does seem to have flipped over like that, doesn't it? Yeah. The volume of content is quite exhausting. <laughs> yeah, I'm, and, and I'm sorry about that as well. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry to add to that pile. <laughs> How has it been? Because this isn't a very funny situation. How has it been writing satire <laughs> for it? Oh, I think the weirdest one, slightly different to this, but was going back a bit, is um, was on the the day of the London bombings on Seven Seven. I was working on a show called Balls of Steel, uh, which I'm sure people either remember fondly or with great anger. I remember that show. <laughs> And we were just in, we were supposed to be in on a writing day. I used to live in Oxford. I'd commuted in. I stayed with my friend Ollie and uh, was going in that next morning uh, to work. And I got caught on a, I was, uh, they were just closing the gates of um, uh, Baker Street Station, which should be a sign of don't get on the tube. But I did what every commuter does and try to nip in the gap <laughs> between <laughs> the gate, which retrospectively was the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, and so, nipped down into the gap and then uh realized that everyone was coming out and i couldn't do it and then i went and waited for a bus um and i got a call from my brother who was just like uh try not to get on the tube I've, there's been rumors of a bomb or something weird uh, or you know we don't know what's going on just stay off the tube and we're like okay fine i was on the bus and then they cut all the phone networks so no one could communicate with anyone or get text messages or tell anyone they're okay. And I, I did this horrible journey of getting completely lost because I didn't know London very well. And I went all over the place. I actually went to Edgware Road where they were just cordoning off uh, one, one of the stations after one of the blasts. Bloody and, hell. Uh, not that I saw anything. Mm. And it was only in conversation because everyone on the bus was chatting around and that somebody had said, oh, actually, I was just on a tube and something weird happened. And we were told to get off and walk down the tube and escape. And that was crazy. Um, and then I got back... Uh, then I finally got like an hour or two late feeling like oh my god they're going to be so upset that I'm so late um, and the relief when I sort of got there from everyone was crazy and weirdly emotional and then added to the fact that I found out my friend who I've been staying with had managed to even though I contract and work in thousands of different places uh, Ollie had managed to call round uh, and work out in classic landline fashion the, the the number of the office to check that I got there okay and said could I call him back oh then my god my, I, I came back to multiple answer phone messages from my brother and sister-in-law saying, actually, don't get on any public transport, Getting and, and me feeling more emotional at that point. At which point a TV was then wheeled into the, the office and uh, we were all just huddled around it watching it. And I, I, I had a bit of a cry in the corner of the room. And then about, I don't know, whatever time it was, like 12, maybe 12.30, it was like, right, knob jokes. <laughs> um, and I just have never... It's it, what's amazing about it, and we we sort of refer to it even now, is that um, the opportunity, however down you are or whatever, the one the one bonus and the one thing I'm really lucky with is that there is a clock running and someone is paying you, <laughs> and um, and you do have to just sort of put aside the horribleness of anything that's going on in your life to kind of get through that day and you know some days are so awful that you, you can't but but in general I, I don't think we've had, ever really had a day where it's been so uh horrendous we have to call anything off but but um, and we would do if we had to but I'm also very lucky to work with essentially family and uh, Tim who is essentially my family um but an old school friend yes because I was going to say it's uh it's the three of you in the Dawson brothers yeah that's right yeah three of us my brother Andy and uh my old school friend Tim who I met well we, we were at 
nursery at the age of two mm. uh, and may have a photo of us in Easter bonnets together. Amazing. Um, and then didn't become friends again until we were like actually 11, I think, at secondary school. Did you always do things together at school or was it sort of later that you suddenly found you enjoyed working together, writing comedy? How did that sort of... So my brother and me uh, were very... Uh, I think persistent with our dad at one point when video cameras were becoming a thing to sort of try and get one and, and it took us many many years of pestering uh, and he eventually borrowed one from well when we were very young he borrowed one from work and I think we got very excited about it and then by the time I was about maybe 10 11 one of my friends had a video camera I used to make videos with him and then who's actually the uh, the brother of uh, it's my friend Chris but he's the brother of Mike Bartlett who's now writing oh, right, TV yes. and theatre and plays so I used to go over there and we would push Mike out of the room um, and <laughs> shoot things uh, as, as older brothers tend to um, <laughs> why don't you go and write and Dr then... Foster in your own room yeah exactly yeah you, <laughs> you go off and win awards um, and so we we eventually got the camera uh, which was amazing for, uh, that my dad got and uh, and my parents were very good at taking like we did one big holiday that we were all very excited about, lots of saving, many years. Never thought we'd do it. Went to America and we did all the... And my parents took us to all the studio tours. And I think that was the first thing that made us go, oh my God, like people make this stuff and this is a job and this is possible. So we, we went back so excited and so uh, engaged that we would start to emulate scenes from films. And at the same time, I was becoming friends with Tim at secondary school. And so we'd invite him back over a summer and be like, hey, should we just try and replicate a scene from star wars or but maybe just the special effect or something or we, we put our hands in shoes and sellotape the shoes to old skateboards and make them look like hoverboards and pretend that they were that's great by using our hands and stuff like that it was all the sort of learning all the cheats and shortcuts and and then one time where we made a stupid film where we we shot the film when we were about 11 and the, so it was me and tim in it and my brother just sort of around and the credits were like maybe like 15 minutes long because we were having too much fun writing jokes in the credits. <laughs> yes. And then we just realised that sort of that was our summer holiday or, or holiday fun. And so it, once or twice a year, we'd make these short films, um, all three of us. And it was this it was this real thing to look forward to um, when, you know, we, we would get to do that sort of stuff. And then after a bit, we were like, why has no one made this into a television show uh, and then we realised it was because we were showing it to our four friends, uh, all of whom um, weren't, were, were teenagers and not running uh, the BBC. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and so we got, the fun thing was showing them to friends and getting genuine feedback because you could tell whether they genuinely were laughing or just going, oh this is, this is funny because it's my friends doing stupid stuff. So for, for, we did that for 10 years basically from about the age of 11 till 21 when the BBC New Talent competition came up and we submitted for that what did you have to submit for that did you have to make a film yeah so that was they wanted two sketches pre-filmed and at the same time as that i think i, I get so confused with the timeline but adam and joe were doing takeover tv so they'd had the first series in the late 90s which we watched and loved and loved adam and joe yes and then the second series started just at the start of 2000 there'd been another couple of things that i'd done at university i'd done some work and and very amazingly and stupidly for because it was all fresh and new, was lucky to win a couple of student TV awards for oh, yeah. the work and had good names present the awards and pick the best ones and stuff. So there were sort of tiny connections there made. That's great. And then we submitted these sketches for BBC Talent when I was about 21 and we got through to the final, surprisingly. And then the judges were um, 
I think Anil Gupta and Phil Clark and Phil Clark we managed to contact and stay in contact with and he was like he'd been he was sort of working on a folder that was um Big Train 3 at the time oh um, wow we went to the shooting of Big Train 2 and sort of said hi so my laughter's on the series 2 of Big Train oh, um, nice. um, and so that's the first we saw of how sketch shows were made and shot um, and sort of wait, I think we might have said hi briefly in passing and just went over with those people. And then we arranged a meeting with them somehow. But at the same time, we sort of had fingers in pie. So we'd also submitted to uh, Takeover TV and a sketch got on that. So that was on with Adam and Joe. And I look back and go, you know, uh, the BBC talent, it was uh, other people in that category, I think, was sh- included Sharon Horgan. Oh, wow. And the um, Adam and Joe, I was looking back and going, I think still even in that that series, you had... Um, Armstrong and Miller and who who were sort of bigger by then so they were sort of stepping down almost to be an I feel it was when they were on Channel 4 wasn't it yeah exactly and also um, Graham Norton was doing like bits and pieces I found some old episodes wow so this weird thing where like I can't remember which jo- series those were but they were coming through on those shows and we would we were still the new absolutely new kids and hadn't had half the experience that all those people had had and then so we with this bravado and confidence we wrote to uh, Channel 4 with a pitch document uh, uh, with a show written up that we'd come up with and for a comedy lab and that somehow also it was a lot of things conspiring got through to a sort of it, this might happen in a meeting and I remember it was Ian Morris and Robert Popper were the two commissioners at the time so Robert who does yes. look around you on Friday night dinners and Ian does, who did the in-betweeners of course so making connections with those people was amazing Robert was about to go off and do uh, look around you um, at the time and they were like well this is interesting do you know anyone who'd like to work with on this if we did do a production company and we're like well the only other person we know is Phil Clark so so we went to Phil and went we might have a commission for a thing on the channel do you want to and then he was like yes and we developed it up and we worked out the budgets and all of these things and it was quite exciting like, oh my god we're going to get make a comedy lab and then uh, Dimitri Martin won the Perrier and he got it Oh and no! So the, for the first few years of Dimitri Martin's career, much as I utterly love him now, I utterly despised him. <laughs> as a sort of like that was our chance. When you did the BBC Talent thing, the fact you had to film. You you had to have filmed sketches ready to send in, and <laughs> yes. and like nowadays that would be that'd be fairly common. But back then it felt like I don't know. Like, I I don't think I did any filming until I was probably fifteen or sixteen, and even then it was kind of a sort of revelationary thing. It didn't feel <laughs> like this was this was something that everyone did. What were you filming? Oh, I was filming uh, so a sitcom I'd written when I was 14 and I wrote two series of that sitcom. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then at 16, uh, me and uh, Benjamin Sutton, yeah. he was 14 at the time and he shot the first episode of the sitcom but we never did anything with it. Oh, well, <laughs> and, I think there's, there's, that was it, really. There's a couple of really interesting things that come up there, actually. One is that um, I think it shows that you've, you know, you you have progressed in writing. You've you, you you've got things made, but you started trying to write an entire full sitcom at 14. I, I the one thing I hold up to our success was that we 
were making things from the age of 11. So by the time we hit 21, we've been doing it for 10 years. That's, albeit badly, you, you shake off a lot of the cobwebs. Oh, you do. You you sort of, you write and you film the, the shit out of you, in a way. <laughs> yeah. Don't you? <laughs> and I, the, the one thing I'm at pains to tell anyone who's, who's trying to get into writing or new writers, it's like going, it, it might, even from now, even if you're starting at 40, it doesn't matter, but it might take you 10 years to just kind of get your head in the right space. Um, or it might take you a lot, you know, we weren't intensely writing. If you're intensely writing, it might only take you two or three to kind of get to the same level. But you, you've got to be aware that it is you, your first sitcom. I remember when we wrote our first attempt at a sitcom. And I remember all we said to ourselves is, we just need to write this because this isn't going to be the thing anyone's going to make. We just need to write this so that we've written a sitcom so that we can move on to our second one. And they won't make that either. But when we get to our fifth one, they <laughs> m- might make that. And I think that is honestly the nature of the industry, which is um, you're not that you are learning a craft and there is only one way to learn it. And that's to write, but also to pay attention to your mistakes and to get feedback from other people. Yes. And to listen to that feedback, Um, because it doesn't matter whoever you're talking to. They've got a valid opinion and they've got a reason why this appeals or doesn't appeal to them. But obviously the most useful thing is to get information from like as many people as you can or a really trusted source. If it's from lots of people, then you can go dismiss everything that isn't universally said. Um, uh, but if lots of people go, it's a bit boring, <laughs> like then you go, well, it's probably a bit boring. Or if they go, I didn't like that character and everyone says that, that's great. If like every, this person says, I didn't like that character and somebody else says, I love it. Then you go, well, maybe I'm writing a show for that person. That's okay. You're still trying to find the audience. Exactly. Do you Without own using the group. word demographic. Oh, use it. Use demographic. Or you're, I, I, this, this is a thing that... It always makes me think of there was a moment when Tom York and Bjork were recording um, the song for um, Dancer in the Dark that they did. Um, I've seen it all. And Tom York was recording his bit. And uh, this is the story. I don't know if it's true. He was recording his bit. And he it's a really emotional thing. And Bjork had done her bit. And it was really beautiful and technically amazing and whatever. And he was singing his bit and he did what he normally, what I guess was what he normally did, which was he found the emotion and he was almost crying whilst like singing it. And then they stopped recording and she just went, stop being selfish. And he was like, what? It's like, stop being selfish. This is like, you're not writing this music for you to prove that you're like emotional. Um, You're writing this for an audience. Get them to feel that, but you don't have to. That's me paraphrasing a situation I was never in and heard the rumor. That's great, but I I think that's the most important thing, and and I've seen it in in uh, I, there's a certain interview I think with I'm trying to remember who else was in the room. Sadly, I think Louis C.K. was in there, but um, Ricky Gervais was in there as well, and and uh, Seinfeld and, and one one of those shows where it's the roundtable. Oh, and Chris Rock. That's it. Yeah, and and I yes, think it's in that yes, one where that. Ricky Gervais says, "I don't write." for the audience i write for myself and everyone just erupts and going why like this is like somebody's paid like 60 dollars to see your show and then paid another like 100 dollars for a babysitter i don't know what babysitter rates are in america but you know like people have paid like hundreds of dollars for two people to come out and see you you should be writing a show for them don't don't do it for you and hope that they like it like and i i really stand by that i don't think any of us should be writing something without some awareness of the person we're looking at and who we're writing for it doesn't mean you can't be it doesn't mean you can't care about your work and it can't come from a place of emotion absolutely should and i think it should mean something to you and you should be writing stuff that resonates with you because then it's more truthful and it's also more 
um, original because no one else has had the experience that you've had, then that's completely understandable. But you're communicating it, and that's I think that's the big thing. You're communicating it to somebody else, so they you you have to have an understanding of how to tell that story to somebody else. No, absolutely. It's when you um that comedy lab pilot that almost went yes, through. Yeah. Was that an, an idea you'd had and you'd been working on for years and kind of like this seemed like an opportune time to to put it in or was it a brand new idea you came up with for for the sort of commissioning brief as it were yeah what was... there wasn't a brief what what we'd actually done is it was an idea i think we we knew we had to come up with something we'd had a few we we did what weirdly what we do now and still have always done is we would just meet up a place called Freud's in Oxford, where we would sit in there and and we would just sit with pads and paper in the day and we would write down as many, like lots of different ideas. Because I don't think you can sit there and go, "This is my opus." You have to just be like, "What's the best thing?" You know, in particular, there's three of you, you you've all got different opinions, so you've all agree it's the right thing to do. And um, you know, uh, the the one there was one that we settled on, but it was we we did a thing that I think is sometimes slightly bad, and maybe. I don't know, maybe now I wouldn't, well, I definitely wouldn't do it now, but I feel like maybe at the time it was more acceptable. But it was a very, we were trying to be too clever. We were trying to be, we were like, we need to stand out. And I think there's a weird, the one weird lesson I've learned is like, you've got to stand out, but you've also got to massively do what everyone else is asking for. Um, like, if your <laughs> show doesn't look like what's on BBC Three right now, they're not going to commission it. Yeah. Because they're not looking for something that's vastly different if you go well you don't have a show that's entirely um a, a sitcom about monkeys like but there's a reason because <laughs> your audience don't want that i mean i want to see that but the audience doesn't um yeah and <laughs> it's the whole again right it not writing for yourself exactly 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 unless you're writing for the monkeys and you you really want to convey certain emotions to the monkeys um yeah so the thing we came up with was a uh, my brother had been reading a book called the mezzanine which was this brilliant concept that was sort of like the book was all foot it was like half the page was footnotes which was a, just a brilliant concept so it was like you're telling a really short story and then every little moment has a little star or something next to it and it's like you know it would talk about a straw and it'd be like this uh it wasn't a plastic straw, it was a, a paper straw, like the sort of straws that I used to think when I was younger. And it would it would just go into this depth. And <laughs> the whole point of it was sort of like the minutiae of the story was more interesting. So we wrote a sort of sitcom where we wanted just the synopsis to be like, John makes a cup of tea, which is sort of what our first episode was. But that everything is sparking off a thought and a piece of history. And we would, we created the system where you would sort of wipe from one scene back into his past. And you might go back from that thought to another thought. And you'd almost, you could go down a line of thoughts and then return back up the line of thoughts. And um, so it was a very complex sitcom and we certainly weren't skilled enough to write it, but people were up for us doing it. But we, we'd, I'd done out demos because I was, again, this is 2003 or four. No one's got technology. I'm a nerd. I was very good. I'd hacked loads of computer stuff. And I was... And so I did stuff where I did stuff that made it look a bit like the Fight Club aesthetic of like oh, yeah. lines coming up on stuff with stats. So if somebody's patting a pocket to see where something is, you have a marker saying keys coming up, where it's saying where the pocket you pat another one that says phone coming up. And we did a little oh, demo wow. taster of that and got some friends' kids to play the that guy as a kid. And so we shot a whole little taster. I think that we were just very lucky at that time that we could do that and therefore we could stand out. Yeah. And that was how we stood out. That's great. But that's, that also sounds like a really interesting... At least it's, it's complex, but that sounds a really interesting concept, a very 
But I can't think of any time it's really been done. Specifically done now, I can only think of things like Pete versus Life, perhaps. Yeah, where... I, I think that's not far off it. And also, I think the other person, sadly, who does very similar stuff is fucking Dimitri Martin. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> no, but like, I, I love him. But I think his show was in a similar vein of like oh, the, uh, al- analysis of the minutiae of life, which, um, which he did beautifully and probably way better than we ever could have done <laughs> um, uh, uh, at the age of like 24. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Tom, and I make a podcast where I log in to celebrities' Amazon accounts. It's called... What a brilliant idea for a pod. There's no original pods out there anymore, but this genuinely is. Oh, thanks, Ben Bailey-Smith. Anyway, it's called... This is good, isn't it? It's clever, this podcast. You should do more. Thanks, Kerry Godleyman. It's called... This is such a great idea, by the way. What a great podcast. Shappi Corsande, you're too kind. The podcast is but called... It's biographical. You can get all sorts of information out of people. This is a very good idea. Thank you, Nick Helm. It's called My Mate Bought a Toaster. I'm going to listen to this podcast. Thanks, Alex Horn. Can you tell your friends? You write a lot with uh, David Williams. Yes, we do. Where did that um, stem from? Did you write on something that he was in and then you formed a relationship? and, Or had you known him, as you say, when you, start, when you sort of started out and you met Phil Clark and people like Robert Popper and Ian Morris. Did you did you meet David Williams quite early on? The nature of TV is that everything's a family tree, and I could sort of, I could properly take you back to how Phil Clark sort of led to us meeting David. But the sort of the short form of it is, we knew friends of David's. Uh, uh, we worked with Peter Serafinovich and James Serafinovich, who were close friends of his, and um, so we knew they knew him. Uh, we'd also worked on. Uh, when we did Mitchell and Webb, uh, Gareth Edwards, the producer, had gone to work with David and Matt on a show called The One Ronnie, where Ronnie, they brought back Ronnie Corbett for yes. a one special. Yes. And we did a sketch on that, which very luckily also had Ari Enfield in and did very well. And for, you, wrote the, you, you wrote the Blackberry sketch, it didn't you? It was the Blackberry sketch. And, and the BBC, um, our weird claim to fame, was for about three years, it was the biggest clip of anything on YouTube for the BBC. Um, and... So that went down incredibly well. I had these weird conversations that we had when occasionally we did meet up with Ronnie Corbett in the in later life of going, we, we've made you go viral, but I don't think you know what that means, um, sort of thing. So David knew knew that sketch, and I think he was he liked it. It, it sort of did very well for us that sketch, it, um, 
and so he got to know us through that there was a there was a sky show he worked on where we did basic gag writing and we ended up meeting him for like a day or two like just for the old meeting just chat through ideas and writing stuff like that and seemed to get on oh and oh and then we did funny or die uh that was the other thing we did when funny or die came to the uk they were the ambassadors and so i my first time properly meeting him i was recording him a voiceover for him for an animation that i'd done for the funny or die uh back in sort of 2007 or something 2008 um what was that when it was maybe it was 2009 actually and uh so i met him briefly then so we'd sort of we'd circled around each other and then he had a sitcom idea called big school that he wanted to do and they wanted to pair him up with writers because he wasn't working with matt at that time right yes, i think yeah. he wanted just somebody to bounce ideas off so we got he got, i think because of the blackberry because of knowing us through other bits he sort of got in contact um and we asked he wanted to do it and it was an interesting time because he he wasn't he was the book author who was starting who who just started to be very famous at that but and he just when we met him he just got britain's got talent oh wow so yeah it was sort of weird transitioning time of like meeting him and watching him go from that through to properly sort of shooting off and becoming huge and so we've been very lucky that since 2011 2012 we've we've worked with him we get on really well he's like the nicest guy he's so giving and also you couldn't learn more about comedy from like someone who's he's such a good writer like it's so hard to push how good a writer is it's always great to have someone like that championing you as well we've we've been lucky and we've been very lucky we've had times where you know we we've got to learn from other people and um it means something different now and i apologize <laughs> apologize for this but you know we we got to write a bit with graham linehan yes um in the early days when when we when there wasn't a huge amount of controversy when when you could like him um and i don't know i think a lot of people in comedy would be lying if they said like Graham Linehan wasn't a kind of comedy writing role model. Yes, exactly. I know it's really controversial now, but I can't really go. Oh well, I, I you know, I never liked him anyway because it's not true. <laughs> and you know, from him, there was a really good. He was very good. At, we learned a lot about him about sort of those um, writing stories from sort of thinking about the big, big beats, the big like story, but moments and how you get there rather than being aware that that's what you're selling people. You're you're selling. You could write a really elegant story, but if there isn't something that you go home going, oh, that's the episode where um, so-and-so looks like a ghost, so-and-so thinks, thinks that someone's a ghost, so-and-so does X, Y, or Z, that's, that's the thing that really sticks with you. And weirdly, we've been writing film recently, and it, it hits the same thing, which is, and I, I heard it from Chris McCrory talking about when he writes with Tom Cruise, it's like, you know, Tom Cruise comes in with the big story beats and the... Or, or, you know, they come in with the stories and the ideas, but he comes in, you know, he wants to jump off the big building in Dubai. um, And that's what you've got to write into your story. And an amazing thing from him, which I'm trying to use a lot more, is that there was a bit where in in one of the last last Mission Impossibles, the script said he walks out the door or something. You know, he he walks out the door into the street. And Tom Cruise's note came back going, does he walk out the door? <laughs> like, yeah, no, of course he doesn't. He 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 he, fi- he gets onto the roof. He fires off a thing and then slides down. That's how he gets out. But you just go, of course. And like we we all get caught up in that thing of going, well, it's me. I'd walk out a door. And you go, no, like Hunt does not walk out of any door. He's never walked out a door. He he gets out up in the morning and he dives out the window. That's what he does. 
the, the biggest honor has been uh, was getting to work with Michael Crawford and doing oh, Frank Spencer for a yeah. comic relief thing. And not only did we get to write for him, but we got to we 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 chatted and sort of became connected with Ray Allen, who who was the original writer of the show, who who's you know been retired for quite a while now. And and it's you know he's he's a he was a remote writer before any of us. He he lives in the Isle of Wight and he used to. Um, post office scripts to the BBC and then just wait for a response and he'd go to a phone box down the road, uh, call the BBC, or wait for the call from the BBC because he didn't have a phone. Oh, wow. Uh, take the notes, go back, rewrite, occasionally get on a ferry back over, meet people in London, but did a lot. You know, he, he was the the original, you know, remote working writer. <laughs> and uh, But what's interesting is how much, you know, Michael was very, is hugely involved in that and, and he's very set-piece driven and, you know, we... we we all did a pass across it in different ways and it was nice to sit and talk to him. We went over to his house and sort of sat and talked to him about how, you know, got him to read the script and he'd read a line and we get this, we see this a lot when you're trying to write front of the person's character. But from the outside, you can do a great parody of it and everyone else would look at it and go, that's the character. Yeah. But when you talk to the person who came up with the character... You, you see such another level that you go, oh, he doesn't, that's not what he does. Like, he can look at line and go, he do, he literally wouldn't say that. That's not the way he thinks. You know, and, and I'm trying to think of a line specifically, but but he would definitely say to us, like, this is, he thinks like, think of any of your, like, nephews and, you know, or, or kids or whatever. He's like a four-year-old and it mm. everything takes, like, a little bit of time to process and he's following a logic and the logic's there and you can follow that line of logic. And so he would then take the same line and say something else. And it'd be so funny and it'd be so clever. And you'd be like, of course, because we hadn't realised that the character was actually had all that stuff going on. And that's working with a great actor. That's incredible. You're like, you're, 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 see, you're seeing inside, inside his mind, essentially, how his, how his mind works. Yeah, it is incredible. We, you know, working with him, working with David and seeing all the Little Britain characters. And you see, I think a lot of people look at the little ring characters and see the sort of the jokes which you which of course you do and the catchphrases and i think you don't realize how much of it is a thought process and a character won't do this and david's way of structuring characters and stories he's got such a brilliant mind for it and he can do it in such a such a linear way that makes sense to him that sort of a won't connect to b and it just doesn't like you it has to be this kind of direction that the character goes in and it uh it's really elegant really simple traits i think is the heart of a lot of things and I think some of the best characters have really simple tra- traits. We we had um, Jeremy Dyson come in to talk about a script we were doing a while back, and it was really fascinating talking to him as well because his he was sort of referring to how you know recently, or not that long ago, a friends document went up, which was just a paragraph on each friend, and he was saying it's amazing how much that paragraph still holds true. Oh of, wow! It yeah. was written before the show started, but that what it starts is like there's these really clear headline things that each character is and they're all like almost one word um and he's like the thing he said which i think is really wise was like lead characters have like three main traits maybe like con you know things that that define them yes that you find funny about them um don't try and put too much more nuance in that because that's not what he was saying but this is my reading into it and i think it's true don't put too much nuance in into it because it becomes too complex and and also, no one cares what newspaper they read. 
like I, that's the old thing i remember when we were in america everyone was like what would he do if you if he, you gave him a lemon was the question that was apparently going oh, on really like, what would this character do if you gave him a lemon he'd hand it back and go why are you giving me a lemon <laughs> um and uh which is what i want you want to say but of course you wouldn't. yes yeah um, and i don't i don't agree with that i mean you what they mean and their intent is right is do you know this character and do you can you write can you instinctively write what they do because if you ask any of us to write joey from friends we know how he's going to respond yes in, in real life and then he sort of then then uh jeremy dyson's kind of response to the rest of it to, to the other characters like give them one trait if they're a sort of background character give them one trait it, they are the you know um you know they're they're always frustrated that's too simple a character trait but you know it's like you, that's a simple hook to that everyone gets and we love those characters it is fascinating because uh, the whole sort of feeling like you have to know the character inside out to like even as you say what what do they have for breakfast all the sort of different nuances it's interesting to hear someone say actually you just need three main traits and you've got that well, person and, and i think i think it's like you know what does if you were to say what does leslie nope have for breakfast i mean in my mind it could be anything i imagine it, it will change day to day depending on the story and, yeah. and it's like you know she maybe maybe it's nothing because she's read about feast fasting or maybe it's like <laughs> you know it plays into the character it the, the character's choice and things it's not what they're eating because that changes every time or it might yeah. be that she's it might be that she's tried feast fasting and she's gone back to coca pops it's like whatever that that's that's the character and it's a more in-depth thing than uh, simply just what is that one item that defines them or you know we st- we got uh, we ended up in a situation a long time ago. And I won't mention the show or the people, but sure. where a show went backwards and forth, a sketch show, and ended up getting performers in to write some of their sketches. Um, and then instead of using the writers' written sketches, and not all performers and not all sketch writers are good, you know, like like it, it depends at writing them. And they got us back in again to sort of because they were like, oh, things aren't quite hitting the way they were. And the worst thing I think a character is. And this is sparked by um, this is sparked a little bit by the Alan Partridge thing, but people take the wrong thing from Alan Partridge and they write these wonderfully worded. Like I just remember going through like two block pages of text of a character who's weaving in and out of these catchphrases, thoughts, um, things, and I'm like going, but could you underline? I just want you to underline with a highlighter where the jokes are, like where where I'm going to laugh in this. Not not because like. You don't have laughs. Don't have to be obvious. They don't have to be big jokes. They don't have to be anything else. They can be a character move. But in a big block of text, certainly as a reader, I can't draw a line under and go, "This is where the big belly laugh's going to happen." This is the thing. You go. This is. It can. You can fall down the trap of writing a series of nuances, and they're beautiful and they're elegant and they're so well thought through characters. But they're are they are they funny? Do they? Yeah. Do they play off things? Are they real? It, you want something that's recognisable. It's why. Characters like Alan Partridge or Leslie Nope, they've had such longevity yeah. because we know them. If someone said to you, "Sum up Alan Partridge in so many words," well, I mean, what what is he? He's sort of he's sort of desperate. He's confident, um, which are two great things that play against each other. Yeah, and I guess mate, this might feed into the confidence, but but there's a he's obsessed with his own intelligence as well. There's a sort of obsessiveness about showing that he knows how things work. And I'm not saying those are the three that define him. Obviously, when you start to think of a character, you start to think of real people. That that gives you a level of detail that you don't, you, you shouldn't have to think about it. You shouldn't have to write a big document about them. 
I think almost when coming up with a character, you should be able to write a few simple lines, and that implies so much to the reader or so much to the to yourself as somebody trying to come up with a character um, that you go, okay, I've got it. Then you you know, I, I totally understand also performers, and I'm not a performer. When you do get on that stage and you do need to do things, that's when the turns of phrase and everything else kicks in. But it's just got to make sure it's still got that one those those central traits to sort of hold true. Sometimes. I certainly have done this, where you do a spider diagram of loads of different things that just come to your mind about the character. Like, you're literally just vomiting everything that you can think of. Yeah. doesn't necessarily mean you're going to actually incorporate that or use that. It's like, apparently, in, I remember seeing, you know how with Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, they had the flip chart? Right, yes, yeah. And for Hot Fuzz, apparently, uh, Nicholas Angel, Simon Pegg's character, w- was going to be afraid of bees, but that never made it into the film right right but it's still quite that kind of thing of you're just throwing so many different what else could we know about this character because i think that's the next level isn't it is that's where you you sort of know your basic traits and that's what the character's built out of and then the rest is like brainstorming what's going to happen in a show or how to get the most out of those traits and being afraid of bees is is i I can see it in the character, but I, I didn't need you didn't need to say it. you know you can show it if that's funny, but equally I I didn't need to see it. I, I I get the sense I can totally imagine him being afraid of bees. It'd be funny, you know, it would work really well. If you had to be isolated with any TV comedy character from sketch or sitcom. Who would it be? Oh my god! Um, like, <laughs> see, part, part of the problem is I used to really uh, fancy Tina Fey in Thirty Rock. So I mean, just purely for that, <laughs> I, th- I think Liz Lemon. Um, Liz Lemon. I think there's, I think there's something genuinely, like, besides the fact that there was just a personal attraction to Tina Fey and her her brilliance. Yes. Um, I think. Uh, aside from that, I genuinely think there's something about her character and the minutiae. I'm such a, I'm such an OCD like pernickety kind of person that I think I'd quite like. Uh, and uh, who likes the really small things of sitting at home and just being in a really comfy blanket? I think there's something about her that would be uh, a, a joy to spend time. Let's just assume in this we're married um, <laughs> and, and we're living together. And I think that, that, I think it's just something. Uh, about her character that is real, connectable, but also so silly and 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 has fun and is a fun character. There's something joyous about Liz Lemon as a human, um, and and also you do want to give her a big hug when she's failing, and and you do want to share in her joy when she's succeeding because you realise how hard her life is, but also how she makes her own life hard. Yes, exactly. So yeah, I think I think just for the case of being in, I can imagine sitting in a comfortable onesie watching trash TV. Uh, with Liz Lemon. That would be great. That's great. And you know, you are the second person who has said Liz Lemon. Am I? Who else? Anna Morris. Did she? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's good we're five episodes in and Liz Lemon has been twice. <laughs> that's great. That's great. That says something about a character, doesn't it? It does. It's just, I mean, I, I honestly don't think you can write a better sitcom than that.
television history is contained within the box of delights. It was happening in front of us. Incredible. In our living rooms. It was amazing. Guests pick their favourite television moment and tell us why they love it. And is this the episode where Daisy's just been for the interview at the Woman's Magazine? Flaps. That's it, Flaps. Yeah. Named one of Radio Time's best podcasts of the year. I don't understand people who don't see the joy in drawing the curtains, mug of hot chocolate and something nice on TV. Like, what could be nicer than that? Than having a snuggle. Exactly. Nostalgia in bite-sized chunks. Box of delights from Great Big Owl. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.